0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting edge energy management software for battery optimization, virtual power plants, and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high resolution solar proposals in minutes.
1: Welcome to the latest uh, episode of Energy Insiders. Uh for the week uh, that will end on Friday the 18th of November. Uh, It's David Leach here, um, uh, Head of ITK Consulting, and Giles Parkinson, who would normally be uh, co-hosting, is unfortunately out of office today, so you're left with me. Our guest this week will be Matthias Buck, who's the European Head of, or Director for Europe, for Agora Energy Vendor, and I'm sure I've pronounced uh, that, that, that badly. Um, and, and Matthias gives us an excellent uh, discussion of what's going on in the EC with the Fit for 55 package. And for the first time in my life, I've actually understood how European legislation works. Um, and and it's a, it, I, I, the news in this discussion that I think, uh, to me at least, was that the uh, border tax, uh, that the carbon border tax that Europe is introducing, Uh, will likely become more or less uh, finalised and legislated by Christmas this year, so within the next uh, six weeks, I think it was this year for Christmas. Uh, In general, that's a great discussion that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, Before that, I want to mention that probably the most interesting, another very interesting event was the release of the global carbon budget. Uh, One of the directors of that is Pep Canadell from the CSIRO here in Australia. The global carbon budget is arguably the world's most prestigious uh, measure of global carbon emissions by, uh, in various ways, partic- particularly by fuel and also by source. Uh, and you can derive from that conclusion that um, uh, the world has a 50% chance of getting to 1.5 degrees C of warming within the next 10 years. And I would say myself, that no matter how hard we work, it's going to be very difficult to avoid 1.5C. In fact, I wouldn't put any money on that at all. But to avoid even worse than that, we have to start working even harder. To give you an idea of the scale of um, global warming that I think every Australian and every person in the world should walk around with in their head, it's that oil, oil, coal and gas that we produce each year that heats us and runs the cars and does all the other jobs, runs industry Adds up to about half a zetajoule. a zetajoule is a million petajoules. Uh, and so we produce and consume about half a zetajoule of oil, coal, and gas in total. Whereas ocean heat content last year went up by about fourteen zetajoules, maybe even sixteen, so about twenty eight times as much. And we've put two hundred zetajoules uh, of ocean of heat into the ocean. Since about 2000, since 1990, these are incredible numbers. And whatever we do, we're not doing it fast enough. Within that, I would also mention that taken over the last decade, as a whole, the incremental growth in carbon emissions was mostly driven by gas. Coal emissions have been stagnant for a decade, more or less, and oil's gone up a little bit. Cement's gone up some, but 60% of that growth was coming from gas. So. Gas is not part of the solution, in my opinion. It's not as bad as coal. It's still only 20% of total emissions, but it's a big contributor to the growth in emissions. Now that may change over the next couple of years uh, because China and India and Vietnam uh, are investing in more uh, coal generation facilities. It's true that China's doing a lot in the area of renewables, but they are also doing a lot in the area of new coal plants. And so that, so for as long as that continues, the rest of the world's going to find it very difficult to fix the problem. The next topic I wanted to move on to was AGL. And I've been saying on this podcast for some time uh, that uh, the big three gen tailors uh, were sowing the seeds of their own downfall, more or less in the share market or in their valuation, because they were too focused on their existing coal generators. They were too focused on dispatchable generation, in my opinion, and they didn't have a story for their retail audiences around uh, that the retail clients found attractive. It was all just about price, and you can rarely sell price alone. Um, and so we've seen takeovers from uh, um, uh, of origin in place, not yet a done deal. And we've seen four new directors, independent ones, elected at, at AGL. Uh, And these were the directors nominated by the Michael uh, Cannon-Brooks team. The point I want to make is at AGL is that the board now consists of nine directors, those four that that were the Cannon-Brooks nominees, uh, and a fifth one, uh, Miles George, who has a very long history as Chief Executive of Infratil, of uh, Interim Chief Executive at uh, CleanCo in Queensland, as a former Chair of the Clean Energy Council and uh, one of the most knowledgeable and experienced uh, executives in the area of clean energy in Australia. He's also on the board. So I would argue that the Canon Brooks nominees, uh, all independent, plus Miles George, also independent, actually are five out of the nine directors and in position, therefore, if push comes to shove, to, uh, to drive change at AGL. That's all. I, we don't know what will happen there, but I, I wanted to note that. The other thing, uh, finally, before uh, we get to Matthias, and really I should probably have put this at the end rather than before the interview, is that we've seen a lot of switching off in South Australia of solar for good reasons, but what it's demonstrated is that the system services in South Australia still don't have enough grid-forming inverters. We are moving in Australia to an inverter-based system, and we can have grid-forming inverters to provide all the inertia and frequency control and uh, the other good stuff, uh, and we can actually distribute them throughout a country, a big geographic area in South Australia, quite easily, uh, if once that technology becomes uh, accepted. As and we, it, when we do that, there'll be a lot less need to uh, forcibly switch off solar generation. You'll still need to be spilled a little bit if there's too much of it and nowhere for it to go, uh, but it'll be able. To, it won't have to be switched off just because there's a lack of uh, system services. Uh, from inverter-based equipment, we can we can fix that problem. Well, without uh, further ado, it's an absolute uh, pleasure to head on to our interview with Matthias Buck. Matthias Buck, uh, Director Europe for Agora Energy Vendor. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders uh, uh, podcast.
2: Yes, thanks to you. Good morning.
1: Um, not all of us uh, understand what Agora Energiewende actually is. I was wondering if uh, you could, you could um, just explain a little bit about the organization, perhaps how it got started and how big it is and what its objectives are.
2: Yes, uh, so the initiative behind Agora Energiewende was the realization that the energy transition, as you say in English, is a cross-political a spectrum a generational project. So it is a project that, by its nature, um, is beyond just one legislative mandate, one political mandate. Now, against this background, um, several philanthropic organizations, um, specifically the European Climate Foundation and the Mercator Foundation in Germany, um, decided in 2011 that there would be some space needed in the German political discourse to articulate uh, uh, the views on what's next for the Energiewende in Germany. At the time, the Energiewende was um, very much a German project. And um, so they decided to set up um, essentially a platform to bring the, uh, the stakeholders together and to exchange on the next challenges and what are specific steps to take. And this was kind of the nucleus of Agora and given So the term is lent from the Greek Agora, which is was the public space in Athens, where people met to discuss public matters. And so this is kind of the inspiration. And in a way, this is how we seek to work. So we are um, doing uh, sound, robust research. And on the basis of um, technical studies, sometimes done in-house, sometimes done by consultants, we are um, uh, engaging with stakeholders, companies, politicians, so decision makers in a a broader sense, and um, try to get their perspective on the challenges, and then um, are developing pragmatic, practical, but forward-looking solutions for the next challenges that are coming up. And this has been uh, quite successful in the German context as an approach to really um, help the project energy to stay its course. And uh, because of the uh, success um, of the German approach, our funders um, essentially decided this, this is worth scaling. And today uh, we are working um, with the same approach in Europe. So focusing specifically on the European, Policy process, so the EU 27, as we say, the 20 27 countries that currently make up the European Union, um, as well as some of the neighbourhoods, um, and we are also working increasingly with international partners, so with think tanks in other countries that um, we support in um, taking a similar approach to the way we are working. So kind of combining robust scientific research with uh, a dialogue that um, brings together the, the key stakeholders on a specific topic. And then to translate it, uh, this, this work into tangible pragmatic policy proposals. So this is and how we work. Um, and, and important, I think, for, uh, for us as well is we are uh, still more than 80% of our funding is philanthropic funding. So we are not uh, singing anyone's uh, hymn, so to speak. Yeah? But we are only following our mandate, which is to help reduce emissions as fast as possible.
1: Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, you'll ex- excuse my Australian pronunciation of en- uh, Energy vonda, uh, the energy transition, but certainly when I started my own work in this area in about 2006, uh, Germany was the leader and al- already we were seeing the impact on European utilities. But if we fast forward to 2022, uh, you know, carbon emissions have continued, although they have uh, fallen in Europe from from those days, but they still obviously have a long way to fall in every country. And uh, perhaps the latest initiative in Europe is the EU55 one. And I wonder if you could just explain briefly um, two things. Firstly, what it is and secondly more or less exactly where it's up to in the political and legal process because i must say i get confused uh there seem to be so many steps and every time i think it's a done deal i find out there's another step
0: (laughs) yes i
2: i get it (laughs) so um You know, I will not disclose my age, but of course, uh, to dub a legislative package fit for 55 is something probably that should be reconsidered. That's for all the listeners. But um, why uh, fit for 55? Because um, in Europe, we have in uh, 2020 um, agreed, and this is uh, set out in legislation, to um, become climate neutral across the continent by latest 2050. And there is an interim step in 2030, and this is reducing greenhouse gas emissions in Europe by at least 55% compared to 1990 levels. Now, the previous climate target that we had for 2030 was minus 40%. Now we're increasing this target to minus 55%. And um, we are far beyond the point in Europe where just by addressing one sector, you could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 15% across the economy. So the Fit for 55 legislative package is essentially, um, it's a whole bundle of legislative Proposals to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the economy in Europe by at least 55% by 2030. But if you allow, uh, David, I, I say a few words on on the sectors that it entails. So for the <clears throat> power sector, um, the minus 55% essentially means um, uh, stopping the use of coal for power generation by 2030. a massive ramp-up of renewable electricity, so particularly wind onshore, offshore, and solar PV, and to also start converting um, district heating and cooling systems towards renewable uh, uh, and waste heat. Um, For the industry, it means that um, some part of the industrial asset base needs to be converted from emitting processes to non emitting processes or processes with lower emissions so specifically if you think about um, steel production moving from uh, using coal to at least moving uh, using gas or potentially clean hydrogen Um, it also means for industry replacing much of the low temperature heat processes um, where currently gas is often used by um, heat pumps Um, for buildings it's so ramping up the renovation rate of buildings, the depth of renovation, installing heat pumps. Um, for uh, mobility, it means um, 35 to 40 million electric vehicles on the road um, by 2030, which of course has uh, massive implications for the infrastructure, for charging, um, etc., And also the integration into the power system of all these electric vehicles. And it also expands to the land use sector. so. T- agriculture and forestry, um, that uh, care needs to be taken, that we maintain the sinks, uh, the natural sinks um, <clears throat> in Europe and um, um, improve the agricultural practices so that it is uh, contributing less to greenhouse gas emissions. So it's an across the economy legislative project um, that is broken down in yeah about 50, different pieces of legislation. So where new laws are done, where existing laws are amended. And this all together is dubbed the Fit for 55 legislative package. Where does it stand?
1: Um, well, yes, yes. Yeah. Where does it stand? So if, if I look at it, there's the EU ETS, which will be strengthened as I understand it by mm-hmm. a reduction. And it, perhaps we could just go through, you know, uh, through the main sectors, uh, energy, I guess, industry, buildings and transport if we just went through those four Mm -hmm. sectors and 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 you could mention the legislative status or the legal status of 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 the plan at the moment
2: yeah so on the um excuse me so we've had a full bundle of uh, legislative proposals in uh, summer 2021 so a bit more than a year ago and um So what are the steps in Europe? The steps is that um, the European Commission is proposing uh, modifications on new European laws. Then the European Parliament, which is directly elected by citizens in Europe, is uh, deliberating on those proposals and they are stacking up amendments they would like to see to be able to support a proposal. The same is happening on the side of the Council, which brings together the governments. Um, in Europe, so the 27 governments, and they're doing the same thing. Same thing. They're going through the legislative proposals and discussing amendments that they see as necessary to accept, to support um, a legislative project. And then uh, once they have consolidated their views on the different piece of legislation, they meet um, with mandated negotiators and discuss how to come together um, around amendments. And this is the stage where we are at for the bulk of the legislative proposals. Um, So we are expecting, and this is called a trilogue, because the European Commission, so you have a representative of the parliament, representative of the council, and the European Commission is also part of the conversation, more, I would say, in the secretariat function supporting, um, emerging compromises with um, real-time analysis and advice. Um, so we are, for the bulk of legislation, at the stage of the trilogues. And now perhaps to um, go a bit more in detail. So for the... the, um, well,
1: can the... I, may I just mm-hmm. ask at this point, um, if there is agreement by the European Parliament and by the Council does it then require a separate uh, country by country legislation? Or I, I, I understand the Europe, if it's passed at the European level, it is essentially law. But I'm wondering if it ne- nevertheless individual countries have to sort of uh, pass their own legislation.
2: Yeah, it depends on the piece of legislation, actually. Um, so typically you will have so we have two types. I mean, so the process, you know, if they agree, Then it's like in any uh, legal system once published in the uh, official journal um, of the European Union, it enters into effect uh, the laws that are adopted. And then there are two possibilities. Uh, One is what we call an EU regulation. An EU regulation is binding law that applies all throughout Europe and where there is national law that uh kind of contradicts or its intention it is essentially put out of effect Um, so the an eu regulation applies um, across the continent as directly applicable law Um, it still requires in many cases some administrative work of the different countries in europe to then you know, practically make it work to implement it practically, but it's directly applicable law. Um, there's a se- second type, which we call directive. This is uh, a European law that obliges a government to transpose what is in the European law into its national legislation. And um, there's always a debate, what might, what might be better or what mon- what, you know, what might be preferable. It depends a bit on the topic at hand. In some cases, when you have a fairly diverse landscape uh, of uh, so, so fairly diverse situation in Europe, before you start to legislate, then you are preferring a directive uh, because this helps better to reflect the diversity of situations in Europe. When there's a keen interest to really have the same um, legislative instruction Across the continent, this is particularly relevant for internal market issues, for instance, or for standardizing. Then you will go for a regulation. Yeah. So these two possibilities exist. In both cases, you will normally see some national activity to help it you know, to to help the the practical legal effect to implement it. But in case of a directive, it's men it's 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 required to actually make it work.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, and thank you for that. I think i've uh, that explains it better than I've uh, been able to understand myself, and it reminds me again of the long history of europe and and uh, the complexity of the many different uh, objectives that people have and yet the uh, unity that can sometimes be expressed. Yeah, uh, now,
2: the, every, I mean it's uh, for your listeners, it's a bit comparable to federal system, you know Um, it's a bit 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 comparable.
1: comparable. (laughs) (laughs) It it makes me feel good about the Australian system, as complex as that is. Um, um, (laughs) uh, If if I was to go on then, and uh, uh, you were on the point of saying before, I guess we consider each of these four sectors separately. I'm interested in what uh, the timing of when, when the relevant package for the sector is likely to become uh you know binding yeah so for
2: perhaps let's start with uh, mobility we just had a trilogue agreement um, uh, about 10 days ago or two weeks ago on a tightening of the co2 standards for cars and uh, the most important part of this agreement and, and this will become a binding law in europe is that by 2035 um, uh, it will only be possible to sell non-emitting vehicles in europe now looking at the technology it means the end of the internal combustion engine in europe Um, of course in 2035 when you're not anymore allowed to sell new vehicles that are emitting you still have a very a large number of emitting vehicles on the roads, um, but uh, looking at the average lifetime of those vehicles, probably by 2045, uh, 2048, they will be um, gone. Um, so this is a very, very important signal for the car industry in Europe, and uh, probably uh, and, for and the...
1: globally. And I'm sorry, uh, just even we have the tripartite agreement, and so that is now. Set it But we, we don't have a directive or a regulation yet for that, so it could still be modified somehow?
2: No, no, there's a political agreement between the institutions on this package. So the phase-out date of the internal combustion engine in Europe is 2035. Um, what we're waiting for now is just a formal adoption of this agreement, this political agreement between the institutions by the council and by the parliament, and then it will be signed into law. Um, but there is political agreement on that
1: hmm. yeah.
2: um, where we are coming towards a political agreement and likely still before Christmas is on the whole package of what we call the EU emissions trading system and, um, the, uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And that's. Um, economically and politically really at the heart of this Fit for 55 legislative package. Why? Because um, it determines um, essentially the economics of the industrial transition. Um, The energy intensive industry in Europe, um, half a step back if you allow. So the EU emissions trading system, I don't know if you want me to say a word on it, what it's,
1: no, what no, it. I think, I, 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 at least personally, we could say a word on it. Well, um, I guess it's been going, it's in about its third iteration now. I think the current uh, emissions price is about between 70 euros, say, and trades between 60 and 80 euros. Uh, and uh, I guess there are still some free permits handed out, are they? I'm just not quite clear how extensive the coverage is.
2: Yeah, so, so the, the important point is the... EU emissions trading system is a cap and trade system. Yeah, So the most important part from a climate policy perspective is the cap. So there's a quantitative limit to the emissions allowed under the cap. So all the uh, entities, and these are uh, 12,000 some um, installations in Europe that require emission permits to operate. Um, they have a cap and this cap is going down, 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 down year on year. And the number of emission allowances auctioned to the market is reduced year on year. Now the coverage at the moment of the emissions trading system is essentially all the the power generating uh, sector plus large industrial installations. And uh, it does cover as well, energy intensive industry and um, so steel production, cement, chemicals, and particularly when it comes to steel and chemicals, this is a highly competitive, um, uh, internationally highly competitive uh, field of activity where you know few percentage points of production costs um, decide whether you will be able uh, to compete in international markets and. Um, to not undermine the competitiveness of European producers which are operating under the emissions trading system, um, those companies were receiving in the past subject to certain conditions, so-called free allowances. So they didn't have to purchase the emissions allowances to keep operating, but they were giving them for free. Now with the increase in uh, climate ambition we would be running into a situation where the absolute amount of allowances in the market, sometimes in 2034, 2035, um, would be smaller than what our energy-intensive industry would need to need for free to remain competitive. So this was one of the biggest um, hassles from the beginning of the package. How do we manage to? Uh, enable our energy intensive industry to remain competitive in a situation where we need to massively increase climate ambition. And the solution um, that was eventually found is that um, we would establish um, a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So rather than in the future uh, giving allowances for free to European producers, they would have to pay the carbon price as everyone else, but uh, to, to balance this also imports of products would be um, looked at and if they, um, and, and then there would be some adjustment to the, the imported products. So they are also reflecting a carbon price similar to the one paid in Europe. And this is called the carbon adjustment Border mechanism, which is very has been very contentious um, from our international partners, but um, it is really integral to the the package, uh, the fit for 55 package to work. And um, as you well know from Australia and every uh, highly industrialised country, industry and the 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 ability of industry to engage with with climate policies really at the heart politically and economically uh, of the transition. And so this package of EU emissions trading system reform plus carbon border adjustment mechanism um, was the most complicated uh, to develop and to argue through the legislative process. And we are now expecting an agreement in the trilogue on this package still before Christmas. So this would be a huge step um, and really um, clear the way for agreement on all the other parts of the package.
1: I think that is uh, that is certainly very exciting. And I didn't realize that an agreement before Christmas was still uh, was likely. Um, uh, uh, look, I, I, I want to come back to that because the uh, point that is often made is that no matter what the law, the question is whether Uh, it will, in fact, actually occur. So when I talk to the wind and solar people and see, for instance, that the wind guys don't make any money um, and, you know, the amount of installations is still uh, not necessarily consistent with the the law, that's one thing. But before we get to that, I would like to understand, because obviously we know that uh, the bear in the room, um, has been uh the uh, war in ukraine and the tremendous lift in um energy prices and and the rationing of gas uh how do you ex- and i guess there's a lot of debate uh as to whether this uh war will accelerate the change or in fact provide there're also arguments from everyone that they want to do more gas and coal because that's the answer um I, I just would be interested in how how the war is affecting the, the part the package and indeed the decarbonization from europe's perspective
2: mm-hmm. yeah so i think the the first <laughs> nobody had this on their radar um of course in some eastern european countries there were strong concerns about russia's uh, continued aggression in ukraine but um, nobody i know expected this full-scale invasion and um, <clears throat> and so the consequences um, for many countries in Europe, particularly um, Eastern Europe, but also um, countries like Germany, um, which are very, very dependent on fossil fuels, fossil fuel supplies from Russia, um, the impact has been severe. And there were real concerns um, by many that this would essentially derail the the Fit for 55 package and this Green Deal project in Europe. And uh, it took a few weeks really, um, to realize that what we are doing with our climate policies is perhaps not in the very short term, but in the medium to long term, exactly the right thing to Reduce our dependency on fossil fuel imports, and uh, this is the the narrative that has been adjusted after a few weeks. And I think that that's a major win for the climate uh, community, and uh, at least in Europe, that um, reducing fossil fuel dependency is uh, at the same time something that you um, that brings you forward. Um, in reaching your climate targets and this is um, so in a way we have uh, successfully managed to argue that energy security and climate policy go hand in hand and are really two sides of the same coin now when you look and, at and how this that
1: was part, part sorry sorry yeah. but I think that was part of the original objective or rationale of the original energy vendor that you would you know, uh, become more capital-intensive but less exposed to fuel prices, and and eventually more energy-independent. That was the, from the beginning, really, wasn't it? One of the things. Um,
2: it, it was one of the, the sub-headings, but it was not a, a main heading. Yeah, <clears throat> to to be uh, to be clear. I mean, the the main rationale of the Energiewende always was climate objectives. Mm. And uh, so this has been, and it has been very much seen as a climate policy project throughout. Um, the specific uh, sideway in Germany of um, uh, getting out of nuclear, um, of course, has a much different history, and it's it's not shared across the continent in Europe. Some countries have a different perspective on the role of nuclear in the in the decarbonized power. Let's, mix. let's not talk about. Now, let's nuclear. not talk <laughs> about that. Let's on but but the, the key issue now and and this was really forced to a decision by this uh, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine was how does climate policy and what we need to uh, prevent the climate crisis from getting worse how does this now relate to this really burning issue of energy security because uh, l- let's not fool ourselves or perhaps for your listeners we are we have been in a very, very difficult situation in Europe. Um, now, at this point, while we're speaking, um, Russian um, gas has, um, it's about 9%, that was the last number. I've seen 9% of what we normally get um, from Russia in terms of supplies. And um, this is mostly going to Hungary today. And in uh in Russia was covering for 40% on average of European gas supplies. And this is key for industry and absolutely critical for heating in homes. And uh, so now going into the winter, this has been one of the biggest headaches of politicians. How do we ensure that people can still heat their homes when it's getting cold? And so the the situation has been really um, very concerning. And, the question, are we able to save sufficient uh, fossil gas and oil to really make it through the winter? And what about the next winter, 23, 24? So to to, uh, cut things short, there has been a lot of concern that all these emergency measures to now reduce our fossil fuel demand in the short term or potentially replace Russian gas by gas from other sources and oil from other sources would effectively derail the the project of the Fit for 55 package. And uh, the good news is this has not happened. And of course, if you look at the details of decisions taken because nobody had a playbook for this, um, many things were happening very fast and had to be decided very fast there's some light and there's some um, shadow but by and large we are still on track and I'm actually quite optimistic that we will see through the package and um, that the preparations for this winter have been successfully um, yeah, successful and um, there is a question mark about um, the winter 23-24 but I mean, we've had a really a short
1: well, one. Of, one past. winter at a time, you know. And in fact, I saw that in fact, you know, there's um, the supply is is basically full now in Europe, and and yeah. this winter looks okay. And then we will get to next winter and have another talk. I, I, I have no doubt. Yeah, uh, but, but of it course,
2: it the, the the point is uh, the the spiking prices, and uh, this is hitting very very hard. It's driving inflation. And you know all the consequences <laughs> that uh, that relate to it. So it has really created a, a massive um, impact on uh, not only the energy system, but really the the across the economy in Europe. And some of the jury is still out how hard it will hit the economy. Um, you know, do governments manage to balance? Do they manage to protect uh, poor households from the high costs? Um, how do we deal with a high inflation? What does it mean um, for public budgets if now in the last uh, 12 months the spending to to uh, support fossil fuel consumption has been at a level that we spend for the economic recovery after COVID? So there, there are many uh, follow up questions. Um, at this point, I'm yeah. I'm quite optimistic that we will manage just from an energy policy perspective, but of course, there the are broader repercussions still.
1: Yes, and, and you know the economist in me wants to say that if you keep subsidizing consumers and shielding them from high prices, then you don't send them the signal to buy a heat pump. But that I, I don't want to get to too that side of things. The thing I would like to understand most is... About social license, uh, which is a very broad topic. And you have said already that there is a political agreement that, you know, Fit for 55 and decarbonisation is a way for every country to become more energy independent and to have its own, to be able to drive its own energy future to an extent. And I think myself, this goes for Japan and South Korea uh, as much as it goes for Europe and for Australia. Uh, uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, my impression is that, that Europeans don't always want to have another wind farm uh, on their place uh, or even a solar farm and that there's so much new transmission that needs to be built. Um, and as we know, electric cars cost more, et cetera, et cetera, Do you think there is this, I'm just wondering about your feeling about the social will to actually go down this path?
2: I think uh, there has been a massive change in uh, in, in perception on uh, precisely this, that that, um, what's good for climate policy is also helping us now see through this crisis. And uh, this doesn't uh, do away with all the NIMBY, but... I can tell you that I've had uh, for the first time in my life uh, standing at the beach a conversation about a heat pump with somebody I just met. And uh, this wouldn't have happened 12 months ago. Um, So this this topic, there's a technology that can help us uh, get rid of um, gas or oil for heating. And it's actually pretty cheap if you have the the right um, uh, cost structure of the power system around it. Um, This is really uh, has become kind of common knowledge almost. Um, There is a massive interest in electric vehicles. So the the speed with which you see new electric cars populating the, the streets is really impressive. Um, I mean, this is also backed by statistics, though, so the electric cars are at the moment going to the roof. Um, so people see that they can make a difference and that they um, you know, have it in their own hands to some extent. When it comes to um, the required massive scaling of renewable power generating capacity, um, it's a, still a mixed bag. So on the one hand side, Uh, We have, as part of this Fit for 55 package, we already had some, let's say, basic obligations on the countries to accelerate the permitting, um, you know, and just become, you know, faster and more reliable, um, so that investors have a clear kind of pipeline of investments they can, you know, they can work towards, the project developers. And, um, now with the crisis, so the war, um, there has been another policy package added to the Fit for 55 legislative package. This is called Repower EU and has the explicit objective to um, get rid of our uh, dependency on Russian fossil fuels as soon as possible. So within a few years, that's the explicit objective of this policy package. And it includes very important elements to speed up the permitting of renewable energy projects um, to give you some examples the um, and, and this is kind of added was added to the legislative proposals on renewable energy which are part of this fit, fit for 55 package uh, so what's new there uh, is the idea that countries in Europe will designate will be obliged to designate so-called um, go to areas for renewables um, so a minimum amount of the um, potentially available land for solar pv and for wind will have to be designated up front as this is um, suitable for renewable energies and then the permitting um, duration in those areas for the developers will be drastically shortened. At the moment, we have in some kind of across about five to seven years of permitting duration, which is crazy now yeah? and reflects much of the, the resistance. So the NIMBY, the classical NIMBY um, against specific projects developed in your neighborhood. Um, and uh, this idea of go to areas will change it we are also changing our legislation of n- that is protecting nature and species, in the sense that um, renewable energy projects are seen as in being in the overriding public interest, and uh, this sp- particular legal status will help when it comes to um, situations where uh, it is not clear whether you know, for instance, some. Uh, birds may be threatened from a wind park, um, then it is clear that uh, the wind park can go ahead if you take some protective measures for the bird species at population level. Um, And and these these clarifications, in my view, will really help to speed up the scaling of renewables in Europe. Um, We are expecting these days that ministers in the council will effectively decide to front load this part of um, the package to to already put it into effect, this overriding public interest notion, this go to area notion. So countries will already start implementing it. um, Although the Renewable Energy Directive proper um, is still under development in the legislative process and will only enter into effect probably end of next year. So there's a lot happening now in practical terms to speed up renewables projects. And the industry is quite optimistic.
1: For, for you know, in Australia, uh, we have exactly the same discussion about whether the environment and renewable energy can go hand in hand. and. I think wind farms can take five years of permitting, even here, with all our space. And you know, there's a year or even two years in some cases of bird studies. Uh, so these things are all interesting across the world. Matthias, I think uh, I, I thank you for this uh, uh, discussion. It's been very helpful to me, and I hope to our listeners. I, I feel I have a, a much better understanding of the legal. Uh, and uh, history and where Europe is going and I would just remain for me for to wish Europe and Agora Energy Vendor and, and you every uh, success in, in the journey and thanks very much
2: yes thanks David for inviting me and uh, I hope um, your listeners have um, enjoyed the conversation that we've had so thanks so much
1: and that was uh, uh, Matthias who as I said is a director of uh, Agora Energy Vendor and Agora is a very influential, at least to me, uh, uh, think tank, and and, and I, I, as I say, I learned a lot about how the European system works and how hard Europe's working. Uh, it's long really been the model for, in some ways, for how that everyone else can adopt. They went through a lot of trouble in Europe with their carbon pricing and cap and trade, but now it's working well. Uh, the, that cap is tightening up by a few percent every year. Uh, and it's going to be extended into uh, carbon-intensive m- steel production and thing. And then we've got that big news uh, that we're going to get the uh, carbon border tax uh, by Christmas. We've got the tremendous popularity. The worldwide uh, EV revolution has really been led out of both China and Europe, uh, and it's leaving Japan behind at a rate of knots. But meanwhile, Hyundai is coming through, uh, and, and the South Koreans quite well. And so there's a lot of opportunity. It's fantastic opportunities in this uh, decarbonisation space, uh, as well as threats. Australia is most often focused on the threats to our to our big uh, oil and gas exp- coal and uh, gas exports. Uh, but look, if you look at companies like Enphase and SolarEdge in the United States, like Enphase share price was nearly broke at one stage. Went from one dollar. Now it's three hundred US dollars. I mean, over the last four years. Are a lot of money being uh, Hyundai will gain global market share I think. Uh, Tesla is the uh, world's most valuable EV company and very profitable as well. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity as we see in lithium shares. I'd like to thank our uh, uh, sponsors uh, Pylon and Evergen. It's not the same podcast without uh, Giles so hopefully he'll be here next time to uh, uh, get things back on an even keel. Thanks very much.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future.